So this morning, we continue our study of 1 Timothy, which Reed did a wonderful job last week of introducing the book. And as we walk through this book uh, over the next few months, just know that it is directed to a church, a historic, real church. And Paul is writing to Timothy to give him wisdom and advice about how to, how to handle various issues that come up in the life of a local church. So imagine a scenario where a church has young and inexperienced leadership. And in spite of that young and inexperienced leadership, the pastors of that church have been given the authority by God to exercise biblical leadership within that congregation. This scenario shouldn't be hard for you to envision. Since it is the exact place where we are as a church, 75% of our pastoral staff is probably around the age that Timothy was. I'm going to say that Reed's maybe a little younger than Timothy. We don't know for sure. But three out of the four pastors here are in their 30s, which is what most scholars think Timothy was as Paul wrote this letter to him. And certainly age brings its benefits, energy and enthusiasm and excitement, but it also brings its disadvantages, its lack of experience, its lack of wisdom. And as Paul writes this letter, I imagine many of the church members in Ephesus had the same types of frustrations and perhaps opinions that you might have about me or some of our other pastors who are young and still learning. So... This letter is not just for the church universally. This letter is for First Baptist Dothan. For us to glean the truth of God's word as we study it together. So first and foremost, this letter is important because all of God's word matters. And as Reed challenged us to remember last week, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for training, teaching, reproof, and correction in righteousness. So it's always applicable and always appropriate for us to be in 1 Timothy and any other book of God's Word. But secondly, this letter is important because it in many ways fits our context right now as a body of believers. But notice in our text today that the first thing that Paul instructs Timothy on is not his age... Not his capacity to lead, not his vision for the church, not the programs and the events that he should promote, but rather the focus of Paul's remarks are on the teaching that Timothy teaches. So this study, this passage of scripture is all about sound doctrine or right teaching. If you have a heart... For our church to be unified, bold in evangelism, faithful in discipleship, loving towards the lost. All of those things are good and they all stem from not a dynamic preacher, not great music, not nice facilities. They happen when the word of God is rightly taught week after week after week. Sound doctrine is the food that the church of Jesus Christ should feast on if it wants to be a healthy church. And because God has gifted the church, as we will learn throughout this letter, with teachers and with preachers, then it's actually the membership of the church 
as well as its teachers and preachers, that should ensure that sound doctrine is being taught. And this is accomplished in three ways based on our reading of this text today. Number one, by keeping the gospel central. Number two, holding the teachers and the preachers accountable. And then number three, rightly understanding the role of the law. Keeping the gospel central, holding teachers accountable, and understanding the role of the law. Number one, keeping the gospel central. Paul urged Timothy in this letter, specifically in verse 3, to remain at Ephesus. Why? The gospel had already been established at Ephesus. Paul had spent three plus years pouring in to these people. Wouldn't it have made sense for the great missionary Paul to send Timothy out and go on to new places that were still unreached with the gospel? While I agree that the gospel message is urgent and should go out to the unreached, if Paul thought it important for Timothy to remain in Ephesus, I think we would be wise to examine the why behind that. Sound doctrine is not taught overnight. The task of faithfully and slowly teaching and preaching the Word of God cannot be replaced by any other quick-fix method. Now, as human beings, I was told this in school, especially pastors, pastors and almost all human beings, we are prone to overestimate what we can accomplish in the short term and underestimate what we can accomplish in the long term. So in our studies uh, to become pastors, this is normally told to us to understand that how quickly we want the church to move and grow in our minds might be different from the way that God has in mind. So here in Ephesus, as Timothy is there, Paul tells him to remain there so that he can do the slow work of faithfully teaching the Word of God. Faithfully making sure that the people under him understand that the gospel is central to everything that happens. So Paul tells Timothy to stay so that he can keep watch over the teaching of the church. Who do you think would be more prone to being confused or to false teaching? New converts or those that had been established in the faith? And so Timothy stays because this is a new church full of many new converts. And it's normally the new believer who gets excited sometimes about the wrong things. Or they try to expedite their spiritual growth. Or they urge people to come to faith in Christ without asking them to carefully count the cost of what it means to actually follow after Jesus. So we all know what it's like if you're in Christ today to be a new believer. And it is an unbelievable feeling to be a new creation in Christ. When you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ, those early months, maybe even those early years, are full of excitement and energy and a hunger to grow. And this is why Timothy needed to stay. 
Because he needed to come alongside of those new brothers and sisters in Christ. And accurately teach them the scriptures. And he needed to fix this false teaching that was going around. Somewhere along the way, these false teachers that we discuss in 1 Timothy, they had moved on to bigger and better things. They had lost their centrality regarding the gospel. Look at verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. These false teachers were obsessed in many ways with the genealogies found in the Old Testament. And speculating over the details of those genealogies and maybe even taking creative liberties to fabricate stories about what happened to those individuals within the genealogies. Now you might not be passionate about genealogies, but I'm sure you know someone who loves talking about the more speculative aspects of theology. They're fixated on something that, while maybe is interesting, is not central to the teachings of Jesus. It's not central or essential to the gospel. He also discusses myths. There were other Jewish sources going around at this time that were additional stories, like one known as the Book of Jubilees, where you could read other myths and stories about what other Jewish people were doing. And apparently some of these false teachers had become getting fixated on these additional documents that were circulating. And they were abandoning the truth of the gospel. They were graduating from the gospel. They thought the gospel was basic and elementary, and that at some point you move on from the gospel. But you don't. You don't move on from the gospel. In fact, a mature Christian knows that you never fully grasp the beauty and the depth and the magnificence of the gospel. There was a book written a few years ago that I've referenced before. It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And it is a book that focuses on how do we determine what is of utmost importance in our faith and how do we categorize the other things. And so he comes up with four categories, which he calls first rank, Second rank, third rank, fourth rank. First rank doctrines are those that are essential to being a Christian. So the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those things are non-negotiable. Those are first rank doctrines. You cannot be a Christian if you don't adhere to those beliefs. But then as you move your way down, there are things like second-rank doctrines. And second-rank doctrines are urgent for the health and the practice of local congregations, but they don't determine whether or not one is a believer in Christ. So a second-rank doctrine would be something like baptism and the way that one goes about baptizing people in their church. Moving further down, third-rank doctrines. This would be, these are important to our understanding of the Bible. They're important to Christian theology, but there is room for disagreement and debate over it. 
for instance, one's view of Revelation 20, the millennium, pre-mill, post-mill, a-mill. There's all of these views out there. And just because you adhere to one view doesn't mean you're the only Christian. There's lots of Christians that have lots of views about what is happening in Revelation 20. But then there is what he calls a fourth rank category. And these are unimportant to our gospel witness and to collaborating with our other brothers and sisters in Christ. The example he uses in the book is whether or not people use musical instruments in worship. They're welcome to if they want to. It has nothing to do with the gospel, and it should in no way prevent us from collaborating with other brothers and sisters in Christ. So I share these categories with you because it's important that we understand when it is appropriate to disaffiliate from others and when it's not. And what was happening here in Ephesus with these false teachers is they were taking something like a fourth-rank doctrine and trying to make it a first-rank doctrine. They were taking these myths and these genealogies and they were teaching them as a way to convince the people at Ephesus that you need to believe these things. This is where you need to be spending your time. This is what you need to be studying. They got the categories out of order. So speculation, as Paul says here, often deters us from the gospel. It's a poor use of stewardship, which Paul says here. When a teacher or a preacher begins to shift away from the gospel, they almost always lose the gospel. You know the best way for a teacher or a preacher to not lose focus on the gospel? This is earth-shattering. Preach the whole counsel of God. That's how you don't lose the gospel. You don't find topics that you're interested in and then find Bible verses to support them. You allow God's word to speak and you communicate to the people the truth of what God's word says. It would be much easier to just preach my soapbox every Sunday. But that's not what the church of Jesus Christ needs. They need the whole counsel of God. You think it was easy to preach through judges? You think it was easy? Esther was challenging. It was hard. It'd be much easier for me to just camp out in a gospel over and over and over again. But the church of Jesus Christ needs the whole counsel of God. All 66 books. We need narratives. We need gospels. We need epistles. We need poetry. We need prophecy. We need wisdom literature. We need all of it. God has given us 66 books. And we should be concerned with all of them. Paul reminds Timothy that the charge that he has been given is one that is characterized ultimately by love. And this love, he says, issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I love this verse. You want to talk about a prayer that you should be praying for the leadership of your church? You pray that God would give us as pastors pure hearts, good consciences, and sincere faith. Pure hearts that have been washed 
by the blood of Jesus. Pure hearts that are sensitive to sin. A good conscience. And your conscience is not the little man that sits on your shoulder that's telling you when to do something or when not to do something. That is not the conscience. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. So when you pray for a good conscience in the heart of your pastors, what you are praying is that the men that have been entrusted to lead this church would have a strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. And that they would be convictional in what they believe. And then a sincere faith. This is a faith that is not just promoting the view that a pastor wants to promote. Not just getting up on the platform to create a following or to have an audience, but a faith that behind the scenes truly loves Jesus and seeks to be obedient to Him. You know, it can be difficult as a pastor as you prepare sermons from week to week. Sometimes that thought creeps into your head. Am I a fraud? Am I telling people to do things that I don't even really believe myself? And this is how Satan works in the lives of pastors. He discourages us and gets us to think, you're a fraud. What you're saying, you don't actually believe. You're a hypocrite. The way that you're communicating to your congregation doesn't reflect how you live in your own life. And all of these thoughts are used by the devil to discourage pastors and to weaken pastors. So as you pray for your pastoral staff, pray against those thoughts. Pray against Satan working in that way. Pray that we would have pure hearts, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That when we are passionate standing up here on this platform, we are equally as passionate when we're away from here. That we love God's word as much when we're preparing to teach or preach. That we love it just as much when we're sitting at home studying God's word for our own edification. So you keep the gospel central. But number two, you as the congregation have a responsibility to hold the teaching and the teachers accountable. Look at what's happening in verses 6 and 7. Certain persons, Paul says, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So certain persons here are the false teachers. And they have swerved away from what Paul just mentioned in verse 5. Having pure hearts, sincere faith, and good consciences. These discussions that they have had, they might have even been good discussions. We don't really know what they were, but they weren't necessarily detrimental discussions. They might have been good discussions about theological things. But they began at some point to overshadow the most important thing, which is the centrality of the gospel. And in verse 7, we see that they had a desire to teach, which is a good desire to have. But they didn't understand it. And they were making, Paul says, confident assertions as if they did 
understand it. When we get to 1 Timothy 3 down the road, and we study the qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers, you will see that the entire list, outside of the desire to teach, or the ability to teach, focuses almost completely on the character qualities of the pastors and the elders. So teaching, without a doubt, is a fundamental qualification to be a pastor, to be an elder. But it's not at the expense of the other qualifications that Paul mentions. So we're not given much information about these false teachers. But it's pretty safe to say that they were unfit to be pastors, unfit to be elders. Their character fell far short of what was needed. See, their teaching didn't seem to suffer from a lack of charisma or execution or organization. Instead, it suffered from something far worse. They didn't understand what they were teaching. That's scary. When somebody stands up and makes confident assertions because they know that just being confident is half the battle, if you can just get up there and act like you know what you're doing, people will listen to you. This is what they were doing. Tim Keller used to say, just because you believe in the Bible doesn't mean you understand the Bible. And so these false teachers were woefully short in their ability to communicate the truth of God's word. So, as a church, we have a delicate practice and a delicate balance that you as the congregation and we as pastors have. So, it's good for you to have healthy authority for your pastors and their roles as teachers. But it's also good for you as the listener to take the teaching that you hear week after week and hold it against the standard of God's Word. As the membership of the church... You actually have the authority to speak up if you believe false teaching is happening, like we read about here. In fact, not only do you have the authority, you should take that authority and speak up. No pastor anywhere is above the authority of the congregation. No pastor is above the authority of God over his life and ministry. And no pastor has authority over the word of God. Pastors come under God's word and God himself. So exercise your authority as a member of the church and do your due diligence to ensure that the teaching is faithful to the totality of God's word. There was a short little book written on sound doctrine And I want to share a quote with you from that book. It says, Church unity is often fragile because it's built from the wrong stuff. Unity around cultural customs and personal preferences are brittle. Put a little pressure on it and it will shatter. But unity around sound doctrine is strong and flexible. Like a sturdy wood frame house built on a good foundation. When the storm blows against it, it may sway and groan a little in the wind, but it will hold together. If you take sound doctrine away from a church, it might still survive because it has money, because it has people, because it has facilities. 
but it's no longer effective for the kingdom of God. A church without sound doctrine might survive, but it will not thrive. Number three, understanding the role of the law. So the membership of the church should ensure that sound doctrine is being taught by keeping the gospel central, by holding its teachers accountable, and understanding the proper role of the law. It makes sense that Paul would address the law in this passage since we just read that these false teachers desired to be teachers of the law. So in verses 8 through 11, Paul clarifies the purpose and the role of the law in the lives of his hearers and how these false teachers were using it. The false teachers were claiming that Paul was what we call an antinomian, which is just a fancy theological way of saying that Paul was anti-law. But that is not an accurate portrayal of Paul's position. Paul is not anti-law. But he is in anti-law if that's the lens through which you view salvation. So for Paul, for the reformers, for the, for the Christian church historically, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One is not made right before God because of their ability to maintain the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. We know this. Paul does argue, however, that the law is still good in the sense that the law can help restrain evil. For instance, if you see a sign that says, no trespassing, it is there to prevent people from trespassing on private property. That is a good use of the law. It is helping to restrain evil. Paul communicates this in Romans 7, 7, when he says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So the law is good in this sense because it restrains evil. But it's also good because it brings us face to face with the condemnation of breaking the law. We have violated the law. And Jesus is the only one who kept it perfectly. And therefore is the only one who can save us from our sin. So when we're not in Christ and we come face to face with the law, the law condemns us. We realize that we are a lawbreaker, which points us to someone else who kept it perfectly. And the third use of the law is for holiness in the life of a Christian. So when God tells us not to do something and you're in Christ, he's doing that for your sanctification. He's doing it for your holiness so that you will grow into the image of his son. He is not doing it to restrict you or to limit your freedom in any way. He is doing it because he knows what's best for you. And what is best for you is to conform to the image of Christ. So once a person is converted to faith in Christ... The law is no longer there as a way to restrain evil in their lives because they've already gotten a new heart. That's not the focus anymore. And it's also not there to condemn them anymore because Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So once we are in Christ, the law becomes a way to maintain holiness and to practice sanctification. But in verse 9, 
when Paul says that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, what he has in mind is this restraining use of evil in the law, which is only applied to non-Christians, which is why he lists this laundry list of sins in verses 9 and 10. And they all correlate to nine of the ten, ten commandments. The first three offenses reflect the first four of the ten commandments, which focus on man's relationship to God. And the remaining offenses relate to commandments five through nine. The only one that's not mentioned is do not covet. But just in case... The lawless here assumed that only the Ten Commandments counted. Paul throws in this phrase at the end. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So in verse 11, Paul makes the connection between the gospel and the law. So Christian, hear me this morning. It is inaccurate to say that the gospel doesn't matter when it comes to the law. Because in the gospel, Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. And if he refused to fulfill it perfectly, he could not take on the payment and the punishment for our sin, and we would have no way to be reconciled to a holy God. It's not that the law doesn't matter. It's that we can never achieve salvation through the law. But by God's grace and in his divine plan, he did send someone, his son, to obey the law perfectly and die the death that we deserve for our sin. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we have validation from God that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for sin. Someone had to keep the law perfectly. And Jesus did it. Paul has been entrusted with this gospel message. And he is training up and building up Timothy to know and to practice what is most important. Which is the centrality of the gospel. The authority that teachers have been given and how they should be held accountable. And being able to understand rightly the importance and the role of the law within the life of a believer. Congregation, you also, in the same way that Paul and Timothy and pastors have been entrusted with this gospel message, you also have been entrusted with this gospel. You should uphold it. You should study it. You should reflect on it. You should implement it in your daily life. You have a responsibility to ensure that sound doctrine is being taught through all of the ways we talked about this morning. It all goes back to the centrality of the gospel. And before Paul unpacks anything else with Timothy as we work our way through this letter, He wants to make sure that he understands what is of utmost importance. And that is the little paragraph written on the back page of our bulletin. Which is why we read it every Sunday morning. If we don't get the gospel right, we will veer off 
into all sorts of speculation and vain discussions and myths and genealogies and when is Jesus going to return and all these things that might be fun to talk about, but they're not of utmost importance. We as a church must uphold sound doctrine, the centrality of the gospel in all that we do. And if any are here today that don't have a firm grasp of the gospel, let me encourage you to be bold and courageous and talk to a brother or sister in this room who could help you better understand the gospel. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we desire to be a church that teaches sound doctrine, that understands the the beauty and the magnitude and the centrality of the gospel. We want to be a church that holds the teaching of that church to a high standard. We want to understand the role of the law in our daily lives. God, there might be some here today who are They're viewing the law as the way by which they can be saved. I pray that your spirit would convict them of their sin today and show them that that is not the way to salvation. That salvation is a free gift of your grace towards us. We thank you for your word. We pray now that the seeds of your word would be planted in our hearts and that they would produce fruit for the edification and the building up of the believers and for the salvation of non-believers. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.